One of the benefits of being a pessimist is things generally go better than you expect. If you set your expectations low, often you're pleasantly surprised by the outcome. Now, maybe that's not technically pessimism, at least it's not the pessimism portrayed by Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh or Puddle Glum from Narnia. Maybe this is what pessimism looks like when it's been tempered and trained by the Christian virtue of thankfulness. Low expectations, but high thankfulness. Today we're continuing to follow Paul's life story. Actually, it's not really Paul's life story, is it? It's the story of the good news of Jesus and how it spread from a small group of terrified followers in Jerusalem to reach the whole world and turn the whole world upside down. And as we get into these final chapters of the story recorded in Acts, things are not going how you might expect. Uh, Things probably get worse than even your lowest expectations. I reckon that's how Paul probably felt as we left him last week. He's abandoned, all alone in jail. The Jewish believers who'd come to uh, Jerusalem, sorry, he'd come to Jerusalem to express unity and partnership in the gospel with them. The Jewish Christians have abandoned him. And there are other people who have vowed to murder him. And although we saw God's protection last week, Paul's been spared his life, I'm not sure this is how he expected things to go. So at the end of chapter 23, Acts 23, uh, Paul has been transported, moved from Jerusalem to Caesarea for his own protection. And he's awaiting trial before the Roman governor, Felix. Uh, This trial is recorded in Acts 24. Now we know the issue is religious and racial. Uh, Paul has been proclaiming Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus who was crucified is now risen and reigning. And he's saying this means both Jew and Gentile, both ethnically Jewish people and people who aren't Jewish, can put their faith in Jesus and be forgiven. They can be made friends with God without having to go through rituals and become culturally Jewish. That's the real issue. But when the high priest and his buddies come to Caesarea with their lawyers, that's not the argument they make. They argue Paul, and by implication all Christians, they argue Paul is a troublemaker, that he's a menace to society. So have a look at Acts chapter 24, verse 5. So this is verse 5. We, that's the Jewish leadership, have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He is a ringleader of the Nazarene sect, as in those who followed Jesus of Nazareth, and even tried to desecrate the temple, so we seized him. Now, we've been reading Acts, and if you've been following along with us, you know that this isn't true. Trouble follows Paul, but he doesn't stir it up. He passionately and clearly proclaims Jesus is God's king and saviour, but he doesn't stir up trouble. It's the zealous anti-Christians. They follow him from town to town, stirring up riots and oppression. And so Paul stands on solid ground as he defends himself. Verse 11, 
You, Felix, you can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago, I went up, I, Paul, went up to Jerusalem to worship. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city. And they cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. However, I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets, and I have the same hope in God as these men themselves, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. After an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings. I was ceremonially clean when they found me in the temple courts doing this. There was no crowd with me, nor was I involved in any disturbance. But there are some Jews from the province of Asia who ought to be here before you and and bring charges if I've got anything against me. Or these who are here should state what crime they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, unless it was this one thing I shouted as I stood in their presence. It is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I'm in trial before you today. Paul's defence. I didn't stir up any trouble in the temple. I was minding my own business. I wasn't even talking to anyone. All Paul's done is be faithful to the God of Israel. He believes everything in the scriptures, everything that we call the Old Testament, everything promised in the Old Testament, it's all been fulfilled in Jesus. Paul's not opposed to the scriptures, the law and the prophets. In fact, he loves them because they're all about Jesus. And so the real issue, if there is one at all, is verse 21, his claim that Jesus is alive. Once again, in this trial, Paul, yes, he defends his innocence, but mainly he just keeps talking about Jesus. It's a great example for us. Living good lives, openly and innocently within society, with the praise of Jesus on our lips. Uh, Felix can't see anything in the accusations against Paul, but for the sake of political expediency and even ah, a little bit of corruption thrown in because he hopes for a bribe, he leaves Paul in jail for two years and at the end of that time, when Felix is recalled to Rome and replaced by Festus, two years later, Paul is still in jail. Two years stuck in prison Probably not how Paul expected things to go. Uh, two years on, Festus has taken over as governor of Judea. I love these guys' names. Felix, that's pretty good, but Festus. I love a good Festus. So he's, he's the governor now two years later. If you read chapter 25 closely, Festus is a bit of an L-plater politically. He thinks that he's in control, that I'm the boss, I'm the governor after all. The emperor sent me to Judea to rule these people. Discovers pretty quickly, uh, that's not how it works. You've got to play the political games. You've got to keep the Jewish religious establishment on side. And so once again, Paul is put on trial, and this one's a schmozzle. 
In the end, Paul appeals to Caesar. He wants to have his case heard before the highest court in the empire. And you can hear this in Acts 25, so Acts 25 and verse 9. Verse 9, Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favour, said to Paul, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me there on these charges? Paul answered, I'm now standing before Caesar's court where I ought to be tried. I have not done any wrong to the Jews, as you yourself know very well. If, however, I am guilty of doing anything deserving death, I do not refuse to die. But if the charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, no one has the right to hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. And what's Paul's strategy here? Probably a mix of two things. He probably knows of the plot against his life. There are still, two years later, still Jewish people wanting to kill him. And the request to face trial in Jerusalem is a fast to see him dead. He probably doesn't think Festus is competent to keep him safe or that he's got the political spine to give him a fair trial. But probably even more than this, Paul remembers Jesus' promise to him. A promise he said whilst Paul was in jail in Jerusalem. Acts 23.11, the following night, the Lord, the Lord Jesus, stood near Paul and said, Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Paul knows Jesus will have him testify, bear witness in Rome. And so he makes it happen by appealing to Caesar. A few days after the trial, uh, while Festus is still working out what to do with Paul, King Agrippa comes over to Caesarea. Uh, Luke calls him Agrippa. He's King Herod Agrippa II. If a Herod shows up, we should be worried. They've got a habit of killing God's servants. But from Festus's point of view, Agrippa could be really helpful. He understands Judaism from the inside, and so he calls Paul to once again tell his side of the story. And just like when Paul was on the steps of the barracks, defending himself before an angry mob, Paul makes the most of this opportunity. Yes, he explains himself, he tells his story, but what he really does is talk about Jesus. He asserts his innocence. From verse 4, he says that he's not opposed to the God of Israel. In fact, he believes God has kept all his promises and all of Israel's hopes are fulfilled in the resurrection of Jesus. What he says here in Acts 26 is similar to what he said to Felix. So we'll jump down to verse 9 where he retells his story. Uh, Paul wasn't always convinced God had raised Jesus to life. He was once like his accusers. And so this is the question that needs answering. Why did Paul change? Verse 9. I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. 
Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished. I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, King Agrippa, I was on the road. I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, what's a goad? A goad is a strong, pointy stick. The thing you use to move an obstinate cow or donkey along. So what's going to happen if you kick a goad, especially if you're wearing sandals? You're going to come off second best. That's what the metaphor means. So why did Paul change? Because he met Jesus and discovered that goad kicking, fighting Jesus, isn't worth it. Especially when you hear what the risen Lord Jesus offers. Verse 15, then I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. The Lord replied, now get up and stand up on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I'm sending you to... Uh, to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. What is the good news of Jesus? Rescue from the power of Satan, being brought from darkness to light. And as you meet Jesus, sins forgiven and welcomed into God's holy people. That's what those being sanctified means, God's holy people. That's the good news of Jesus. Light and life, forgiveness and welcoming love for anyone who trusts in him, no matter your ethnicity or background, for all people. And through meeting Jesus, This good news captures Paul and he receives what Jesus offers and he does what Jesus says, which is to take this hope to the whole world. Verse 19. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. First to those in Damascus and then to those in Jerusalem and in all Judea and then to the Gentiles. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. That is why some Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But God has helped me to this very day. So I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I'm saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Messiah would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. Do you hear what he says in verse 21? What's the crime Paul's willing to admit to? Verse 21, lives changed by Jesus. That Jew and Gentile can know forgiveness in Jesus and as they turn to God, their lives are changed, showing their repentance by their deeds. You've got to wonder... As Felix, sorry, not Felix, Festus and Agrippa hear that, they go, is that really worth years in jail? 
Paul is innocent, but as Festus points out, he also sounds like someone who's lost the plot. In many ways, Paul has got himself into this situation. He could have lied, bribed Felix, and he would be free. He could have not appealed to Caesar and he'd be free. And even more, you know what, Paul? You actually could mount a proper legal argument instead of just telling everyone about Jesus. Verse 24. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defence. You're out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning, literally your many scriptures, is driving you insane. But Paul's not insane. He's got all his marbles. If Jesus is risen and reigning, if light, forgiveness and love can only be found in Jesus, Paul's the most sane man in the room. Verse 25, I am not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I am saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian, Paul replied? Short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. There's Paul's heart right there. He's not worried about his freedom, his rights or his innocence. He knows life, love and freedom in Jesus and he wants the same for everyone, even King Agrippa. Jesus had promised Paul would proclaim Christ before kings. Acts 9.15, Jesus says, This man, Paul, is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. But I wonder if this is how Paul expected it to pan out. To proclaim Jesus' name to kings, yes, but in chains. Is this really how the risen Lord Jesus, the king of all the earth, is this really how he should be proclaimed before kings? It doesn't really seem fitting, does it? Surely it should have been the other way round. It should have been Agrippa crawling into a cathedral, a great majestic palace-looking building, begging for an audience with the Lord's Apostle. The man, the resurrected Jesus, has now appeared to twice. And so this raises the question, why did God do this? Why did Paul spend years of his life stuck in jail? Why is it that his audience with a king is with with chains? It's very different. I don't know if you saw it, the, the Crown TV show. Billy Graham invited to have tea with the Queen. Surely it should be like that. Not like what happens in the Bible. Why does Paul spend years of his life stuck in jail? And... Here's the other question I've been asking myself the last couple of weeks. Why does Luke give so much detail about this part of Paul's life story? When I read Acts, 
I want to hear stories of fruitful ministry, thousands coming to Christ. I want to hear stories of miraculous provision, miraculous escapes. But Luke spends almost one third of the book of Acts, almost one third is this fruitless time of Paul sitting in jail. What's going on, Luke? What's going on is Luke is deliberately putting together his record of the early years of the Christian movement, he records this history in a way that mirrors Jesus' trial and crucifixion in Jerusalem. If you put the gospel accounts together, Jesus was tried six times before he was crucified. Luke records only five of these trials. Before the high priest, before the Sanhedrin, before Pilate, the Roman governor, before King Herod, Agrippa's grandfather, and then before Pilate again. Luke records Jesus facing five legal trials. And he does the same for Paul. Five times, Paul is put on trial. He defends himself before the angry mob on the steps of the barracks. He's tried by the Sanhedrin, and then before Governor Felix, Governor Festus, and finally before Agrippa. Why does each defend themselves five times? It's no coincidence. Luke's point is to give followers of Jesus the right expectation. The right expectation of what following Jesus looks like. Not optimism or pessimism, but true expectations. Because yes and amen, Jesus is alive. He is the risen and reigning king through his death and resurrection. He has conquered sin, death and the devil. He has defeated our enemies and rules the world. And at the start of Acts, you hear the disciples' expectations. You hear what they expect to happen because of this. In Acts 1.6, the 11 apostles asked Jesus, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? What's their expectation? Triumph, victory, political power, make Israel great again and give us the top jobs. But that's not what happened for Jesus That's not the model of his life and it's not the pattern of discipleship he taught. Jesus' plan, Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus' role for them is to be witnesses of all they've seen and heard. The word witness is the Greek word martyr. Yes, they'll be witnesses with their words. They'll witness as they speak of the hope in the resurrection that they have. And they'll bear witness to their hope in Jesus, their hope in resurrection, by willing, by being willing to hold fast to him to the point of death. It's what Jesus called them and us too. Jesus said, whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you saying, 
The person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. This is what we are to expect. Following Jesus means carrying our cross. So count the cost. But count the cost knowing it's worth it. Following Jesus means we expect to carry our cross and it's worth it because only in Jesus is there light and forgiveness. Only through trusting Jesus is there a place in God's holy people, eternal friendship and communion with God. Let's pray. Father God, we so often forget Jesus' words, that the call to follow him is the call to give up everything for him. Help us keep our eyes on the cross, knowing that just as for Christ, the cross is his glory, so it is for us. Strengthen us to keep trusting in Jesus through hardship and suffering, through trials and difficulties. May we know your presence and hope. Hold us fast. Give us great joy in your presence now through knowing we are safe in Jesus and with confident hope for eternity as your forgiven and holy people. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen.